Hey friends, if you've ever listened to my podcast before, you know that we're always welcoming new members into our global recovery community, the Recovery Collective. 2022 is going to be a big year for us with even more amazing guest workshops, cook-alongs, yoga, peer support, and group coaching. If you've been thinking of joining, now is the time because we will be closing membership doors on February 2nd. This means you will have less than a month to join until we open our membership doors again in June. With that being said, please join the membership today and feel connected and inspired in your recovery by a community of professionals and friends who care about you. I hope you enjoy this week's episode of the podcast, and I will see you inside the collective on February 2nd. You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of the show. Today's guest is Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani. She is an eating disorder expert physician and the founder and medical director of the Gaudiani Clinic. She is board certified in internal medicine and completed her undergraduate degree at Harvard University. She attended medical school at Boston University School of Medicine, and she is the author of Sick Enough, A Guide to the Medical Complications of Eating Disorders. Fun fact, Dr. Gaudiani is actually located in Denver as well, and her clinic is less than 10 minutes down the road from where I live, which is pretty amazing. What a small world, seriously. Anyway, in this episode, we discuss how people living with eating disorders frequently feel that they aren't sick enough to merit treatment despite medical problems and complications that are both measurable and unmeasurable. We talk about how one might begin to break themselves free from this mindset. Dr. G provides so much wisdom and insight on this subject. I promise you that this interview will have you at the edge of your seat. And with that, I hope you enjoy this week's episode of Full and Thriving. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the show. Today, I have Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani on with me. Dr. G, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Meg. You're very welcome. It is such an honor. I actually saw you at a conference when I was living in Boston several years ago. I don't know if you, we, we did not talk. I was just watching from afar, but ever since then, I've been a huge fan of your work. So thank you for everything you do for the recovery community. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for everything you do for the recovery community. <laughs> oh, so sweet. So today I wanted to chat with you about the subject you're probably asked about all the time, which is being sick enough. 
Mm. I see my clients and the members of my community struggle with this all the time. This idea that they do not need to get help because they're comparing themselves to maybe the sickest vision of what they've seen in the media or maybe a version of themselves that was sicker in the past. And so I would love for you to open up with sharing what made you want to write a whole book about this? I would love to. Gosh, I have been in the field for 13 plus years now. And it struck me from the very earliest days that I had the privilege of working with this magnificent patient population that almost to a person, so it seemed to really define the nature of eating disorders rather than being part of any given person's unique challenges, that there was such a profound sense each one bore that on that given day, they felt shame, resistance, mortification about not feeling sick enough to be getting care. And I've now seen this across acute inpatient hospital care, outpatient settings. I have seen it among every possible duration of illness, body size, number of organs failing, every possible version of laboratory values. It is inherent to the disease not inherent to the state the patient is actually in. So I realized that there are a lot of different ways in which individuals might not feel sick enough. And I think two key ones are this. One, as you said, is looking around them and unfortunately sometimes on the internet and saying, oh my gosh, that individual is a different body size than me, clearly has more medical problems than I do. Maybe they've read a blog. I clearly am not sick enough to get care. But then another version of this is when folks compare themselves to their own sickest day Mm. and feel inadequately ill to get help or to challenge the eating disorder and make change. And one of the ways that I've tried to address the latter is by asking my patients to name what's happening. Hey, wait a minute, I see you. I see that the eating disorder has come up with a fabulous new strategy to resist being challenged and is telling you that there was that one time five years ago when dot, dot, dot. And you're not nearly that bad now. So why would you have to keep pushing? And what I enjoy telling them, and sometimes it rises to the level of, do I even have an eating disorder? Or do I still even have an eating Mm. disorder compared with my own past? What I tell them is rather than look backward and connect comparisons between where you were that day, that week, that month, And now look forward instead to what your truest goals and values for yourself say you want to be living. That you might, and everyone is different, say, I want to be able to 
finish school. I want to be able to enjoy my partner. I want to be able to find a partner. I want to be able to engage with my kids, engage with my grandkids. I don't want to be thinking all the time about food or what I'm going to do or what I did do. Hold that vision of your future self and compare that with your current state. Because the difference between your present behaviors, thoughts, and torments, and that envisioned, hoped-for future, that's the reason Mm. why you are sick enough and need to keep working. Mm -hmm. So because of the prevalence of this thought, I named my book, Sick Enough, A Guide to the Medical Complications of Eating Disorders. And you can always tell when it's someone either in the field or who is in the midst of an eating disorder or recovered versus not because those in the former category are, oh, I get you. (laughs) And so that really, I wanted to grab the attention of people across all genders, ages, body shapes, and sizes, and say, if you are tormented by any of these thoughts or behaviors, even if you have nothing measurable that is medical, you are sick enough to get help. Mm. Well, you definitely caught the attention of so many because that book title really struck me. I was like, she's got it. She knows how the readers are thinking and also the providers. Many of us can relate to this, this concept of sick enough. And I just want to touch on how simple that is to really ask yourself, who do I want to compare myself to? If I compare myself to my sickest, I probably won't feel sick enough. But when you shift towards that version of you, you absolutely want, that gap feels so much more important because it, it's, ta- it's the gap between who you are now and who you want to be. And that's really beautiful. And I love that that is the first thing you bring up to those who have that little protest thinking that they're not sick enough. Thank you. Good. Yes. Excellent. I want it to connect because people can recover Mm. and feel better. It ain't going to be pretty. It ain't going to be easy (laughs) and it ain't going to be fast. Mm. But if they keep holding that hope and holding that unique personal vision for what they want for their lives, it can happen. Mm. I completely agree. It's so beautiful to be able to keep that vision in mind. And it's something I always try to ask my clients to do. And sometimes they get a little annoyed because they're like, this is so cheesy. I don't want to think about the future me. But when you do have the courage to look at the gap between where you are now and where you want to be, you will start to notice that you are actually sick enough to get help. That's really amazing. I'm so glad that you have been focusing on this subject. One thing you brought up in another interview when I was preparing for this interview, you mentioned that not all wellness can be measured. Mm. And I would love for you to expand on that a little bit because I have specific people in my community who need to hear a medical professional talk about this. I would love to. It is a favorite topic of mine. (laughs) So Western medicine, which is my basis, has become really fixed upon what we can measure. 
And unfortunately, that has extended in modern medicine to doctors' messages, both direct and indirect to patients, that something is only real if you can measure it, and it may or may not be real and worthy of care if you can't measure it. This provides almost infinite problems and potential for harm for individuals with eating disorders. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So there are clearly things we can measure. We can measure a potassium level. We can measure a weight. We can measure kidney function. And those are really important. Those are really important because we wanna check those at intervals to see how the body is responding to whatever's going on. But I would venture to say the majority of the medical conditions that I treat in my patients from across the country with eating disorders don't have a measurement you can put on them. Mm. And one that everyone agrees is real and is kind of a quote unquote real, because again, the tendency is to think if you can't measure what I have, maybe it's not real, maybe I'm making it up, maybe I'm overemphasizing it. But one example everyone can pretty much agree on is that migraines, are really real. Everyone understands that migraines are real. And yet you can't measure a blood level. You can't see it in a CAT scan and you can't see it on an MRI. But it is the narrative expression of the individual with the migraine that gives it life, that identifies how it happens, when it happens, how long it happens and how bad it is. And also what helps to ameliorate the suffering. We've got to take the migraine model and apply it to all the unmeasurable findings that people with eating disorders have, either because they also have those conditions or because they have problems that are caused by their eating disorder. So let me give a couple of examples. One is irritable bowel syndrome. Irritable bowel syndrome comes in three different types, diarrheal, constipation or mixed, you cannot measure it, but it is not quote unquote, just IBS, which unfortunately is what so many of us doctors, I include myself in the harming group, say to patients when they have been suffering either slightly or terribly with digestive symptoms for so long and their CAT scan is normal, their colonoscopy is normal, their small capsule endoscopy is normal. And they're ultimately left with, hey, this looks like it's probably just IBS. The word just pulls the rug out from under how very, very significant mm. this diagnosis can be for so many people. And there's an implication in Western medicine not all the time, but enough of the time that those conditions that aren't measurable might be being exaggerated by the person who expresses the symptom. This puts patients in a really serious bind because doctors have power. And when a doctor who is powerful says to an individual, this is just IBS, or I can't find anything wrong. It's just because you're sensitive. 
that sets off a whole cascade of problems and harm in that person. For instance, that patient might be the survivor of trauma and a powerful person undermining their story may re-traumatize them mm. because once again, they're in a position where their story is not being believed and taken seriously and managed appropriately. It might speak to that part of the eating disorder that says I'm not sick enough. So when the doctor doesn't express sufficient concern, the patient also feels once again, deeply invalidated, but this time, not just from within, from someone whose job it is to diagnose and to ease suffering. So it causes a lot of trouble on the psychological side. And then it causes trouble because a solution hasn't been offered. Just sticking with digestive work, when I do functional digestive medicine, which I do a lot, I'm thinking about somebody who has bloating, pain, responsiveness to food in sort of a, a negative way, constipation or diarrhea. And I'm thinking not well, if there's nothing on the CAT scan, if there's nothing on the endoscopy, I guess it's nothing. I'm thinking, is it IBS? Is it small back bowel, small intestinal bacterial overload, SIBO? I'm thinking, is it abdominal wall and pelvic floor dysfunction? I'm thinking, is it mast cell activation syndrome? I'm thinking, is it abdominophrenic dyssynergia? There's so many things we can't measure, but when we identify them, we can help reduce the suffering. And when we reduce the suffering, we remove obstacles from the eating disorder recovery journey to make it just a little bit easier. And finally, when it comes to measurement, I have to make note of weight because weight is something that can be measured and that doctors almost always get wrong. Because if somebody is underweight, too often they are praised or this is passed off or explained by the medical system. If they are quote unquote, and I say this very much because we don't have an alternative phrase, normal weight, then their suffering and their symptoms and their eating disorder behaviors are dismissed because the belief by the medical system is no one who's at a normal weight could possibly have a problem with food. And heaven forbid, if somebody is in a higher weight, they are in one of the most stigmatized categories that can walk through a medical office door. And they're almost always invalidated and harmed with recommendations that are basically recommendations for how to have an eating disorder, but doctors apply them willy nilly to people in higher body weights because that's considered appropriate when it is not ever appropriate. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It is such a tragedy for me to just see how there are so many ways indirectly that people can become invalidated when they have an eating disorder. And it could be the fact that you're living with all these symptoms that can't be measured or that you're living in a body size that doesn't fit the stereotypical framework of someone with an eating disorder. And that invalidation can absolutely feed into this doubt that you are sick enough in the first place. Yeah, that's right. It's not necessarily that the eating disorder itself carries the, I'm not sick enough piece, although 
there is an element of clearly, clearly that it does. It's the fact that the medical system shores that up at every possible turn and mm. causes more harm. I mean, I think provider internalized size bias is all about that dangerous measurable. I can't tell you how many kids I see whose pediatrician has told them, well, you're not officially underweight, so it's probably okay. And you can probably just gain weight pretty slowly up until this place where you should be okay. That talk right there has harmed that child because the provider is using their own internalized size bias to imply that there's a minimum weight that a child should get to that may be vastly below where they actually need to get to, to continue growth, development, and recovery. But once they set that lower boundary, forget it. The anorexia has its claws in (laughs) and that's that. Mm -hmm. Or the rate of weight gain. This is about a provider problem, but so many of these wonderful, sensitive, darling humans take it as this is my problem. I clearly am the problem here because my doctor has said X, Y, or Z when it's not, this is a problem of the system. Wow. Up until our conversation, I always attributed the sick enough mindset to mostly the eating disorder itself. But when you do take a look at the larger framework, it is also coming from being surrounded by providers who might be like measuring in too black and white of a mindset and maybe a little bit fat phobic as well, which is, or extremely fat phobic at times. And I'm just kind of having that aha moment as you're speaking, because it's not just the eating disorder where we're getting these messages everywhere. Yeah, we are. And, and it points out that there is really no safe space in our society to have an eating disorder or in many ways to have a body, because if there's no safe space from the ravages of social media and messages around thin worship and fat phobia, and then you come into your doctor's office, which should be a sacred space in which your body is joyfully appreciated and celebrated, but once again, harm is propagated. And for many people, when they then go home, And it may be a super well-meaning parent who is focused on hoping that their child doesn't get or doesn't stay fat or a sibling who can't help but tease. You realize that it's very hard safely in our society to have a body or to have an eating disorder. And I just, the amount of compassion and love in my heart for those who go through this process given that reality really knows no bounds. It is. It breaks my heart as well. Just to, just to think about that. I know growing up, I would take everything my doctor said, like the Bible, we're kind of taught not to question. It blows my mind that when you start questioning it, how you can start to see that there are holes in the teachings that we've taken as 100% truth. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Doctors are supposed to be, and health providers in general are supposed to be safe, 
scientifically based and right. And a lot of the time they are, but a lot of the time they aren't too, especially mm-hmm. on the topic of food, bodies, body size, and eating disorders. Mm-hmm. So another thing I wanted to bring up on the subject of just sick enough is your comparison with the house on fire. Cause I just love that. And I would love for you to share that with those listening today. Oh, thank you. This is a really fun story. I was an English major in college. And so I really enjoy using metaphor and stories in my work with patients in part, because that's just how I think. So that's authentic to who I am. And in part, because I think the telling of stories is such a human interaction. And sometimes if you tell a story, it can bypass that part of the eating disorder brain that's alert to and prepared to block what might otherwise seem like a scientific conversation. (laughs) Sometimes the story can sneak in and have an effect when another discussion can't. Mm -hmm. So true. So I love to tell the story and I, and I do often try to tell it early in my patients and my relationship so that I can shorthand it later on to ask them to imagine that in this case, I'll just pick the the gender of female. There's a, a woman standing outside her burning house and the fire department comes rushing up and says, we're here to put out your fire. She looks at them and she says, what fire? And they say, well, I see the smoke. I, I see the flames. I feel the heat. You have a house fire. And she goes, oh no, no. If I had a house fire, it would be so hot that the sidewalk would be bubbling. And because the sidewalk isn't bubbling, I couldn't possibly have a house fire. And they understand that there's something going on there and they go put out her fire. (laughs) And what I use this for is those moments where someone says, but Dr. G, I have a 4.0, but Dr. G, I'm still playing soccer, but Dr. G, my labs are normal, but Dr. G, my weight hasn't fallen, but Dr. G, my weight is high, if anything all in service of saying dot, dot, dot. So I couldn't possibly be that sick. Mm. And after I've done that story with them and I get one of those moments, I look at them and I say, oh, house on fire. Are you telling me your sidewalk's not bubbling so you couldn't possibly have a house (laughs) fire? Cause I'm not buying what you're selling. (laughs) I think that's such a great visual and a wonderful analogy to bring up. I see that literally all the time either their labs are normal or they're just very high functioning in their career. And so they're kind of waiting for a rock bottom to hit them in the face and it's not going, it could be death. The rock bottom could be death, but maybe it's not going to come in the way that they expect it, this rock bottom that, so they just keep on going in their life. And then another way I see it, which I'd love to, for you to speak on this too. What about the individuals who have the complications and who have the symptoms, but they are kind of in denial that those are going to impact them or, or they see the impact and they don't have the maybe self-worth or the the self-love to take that seriously. Mm, That's such a thoughtful question. I did think of one thing that I wanted to add to the problem. Start with that. And then I'm going to move on to your wonderful question. 
that whole denial of disease severity or resistance to recognizing that something's a problem or the tendency to say it's not bad enough yet. It seems super reasonable to the person saying it because they have this wonderful, brilliant brain and they're used to trusting their brilliant brain and the brain is using all of its smartest mechanisms to convince them that they don't have to do anything about their eating disorder. But it's really helpful when you use a different disease model and you see then how jolting it is. So for instance, nobody says about their cancer, I need to wait until this tumor has broken through the skin and I can't even put on a shirt because you see a tumor under my skin before I get help for this. Nobody says I need to wait until rock bottom with my cancer to Mm. treat it. Mm -hmm. Similarly, when people say, how do you manage if you, if you address an eating disorder with someone and you get that complete resistance stonewall, there's no problem here. It's, it, it, it becomes more obviously absurd. And I say that in a loving and respectful way for how serious it is. If you imagine a friend saying, Hey, you've got a mole on your shoulder. I'm a little concerned about. No one says, I don't have a mole. You have a mole. That mole is not that big. That mole is like not even a problem. I don't know why you're talking about my mole. Look at your own mole. No one says that. They say, oh, geez, I couldn't see that. You're right. I'll go to the dermatologist. When we use these other models, it's so evident that the thinking is ill. And sometimes I just sit in the moment with my patients and I say, oh, honey, the fact that you're even questioning this, the severity, the sick enoughness, whether or not you've hit rock bottom enough or you've gotten ill enough to get help, that that proves the problem right there. Because if this were any other problem, nobody says, I just have to wait until this strep throat has prevented me from breathing till I'm going to accept antibiotics until I'm worthy of accepting antibiotics. No, 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 no. So it's just helpful to question these things. And, and I like that, that like loving, respectful questioning, because so often the eating disorder voice sounds really reasonable, like really, really reasonable. And it sounds so reasonable that loved ones and carers can be fooled into going along with the ED thinking. I'll give one more example before turning to the, what if there are bad complications? Let's say that there's a teenager who's relatively recently diagnosed and his parents are really trying to take care of him. And now they're having to watch over meals and really push him. And he says to his mom, I am so frustrated because I'm at the stage where I shouldn't be doing this. I need to be having my independent space from you. It is outrageous that you are managing and micromanaging me like this. It completely demoralizes me and it makes me sicker back off. I mean, when a mom hears that and a parent hears that, it sounds so reasonable, but then you think, wait a second. And here's a way to come back to it. Yeah. I bet it's incredibly frustrating for you to have me oversee all of this stuff for a wide variety of reasons. If your top priority is to have independence from my nagging you, have a really easy solution. Eat all your food without my having to say anything. 
if that's what you're trying to solve for, we don't have a problem here because I don't need to say a word if you take care of it properly yourself. However, if in fact your eating disorder is trying to wear me down so that I stop insisting you get what you need, baby, I'm going to win this one. (laughs) The anorexia is not going to take you. I am your parent and I am going to make sure you get better. So that's the kind of thing of just like, take a beat, think about what's being used. Think about how the anorexia might be using it for its own good and consider sort of the bigger picture. Mm. Okay. I love that. So when we think about individuals who have really significant measurable and unmeasurable complications and everyone in their family is freaking out and their medical team and their, their dietitian and their therapist are freaking out. And the entire time they sit there in a posture of, I don't know why everyone's so freaked out. I'm going to be fine. In fact, I'm probably not sick enough. And furthermore, some part of me kind of feels I deserve to be sick and suffering. Mm -hmm. There may have been trauma in the background. There may have been any number of experiences that make that person susceptible to the feeling that they don't deserve good things. They don't deserve the soft seat in the room. They'll take the hard one. They don't deserve to keep the heat up in their house in the winter. They're going to run it a little chilly. A lot of the time we need to name that and have that be a really important therapeutic focus. Mm. I believe deeply in people's autonomy over their body at all stages of life and at all stages of the disease. Now that doesn't mean that if I've got somebody who's young and relatively recent to their eating disorder, I'm not gonna fight like hell and pull whatever strings I can so that they survive and thrive and move on with their lives. But I think it's really important that we keep naming what's wrong. Sometimes my patients will say, Dr. G, every time we meet, can you just go over that list again? Because in session with you, I hold on to it and I'm like, right, I've got it. These are things that really are going wrong. I really do need to eat more tomorrow. But then when I leave session, it vanishes out of my head and I can't hold on to it into that motivation. I think we just keep naming it. We keep saying, I see what's there. And a lot of the time I'll identify with my patients that we can't, even if crisis motivates you, we have to recognize we're not going to be able to rely on that for a long time because human bodies are miracles. They are survivors and glorious. And within just a few weeks of nourishing adequately, not purging, resting, and hydrating, oftentimes a lot of the emergency has started to heal and it's gone away. So I remind them that they don't wait until their cat or dog is fainting to feed them Mm. and give them water. They feed them because they are mammals and they deserve nourishment and hydration. And that's the right thing to do. And that if their cat or dog were ill, they wouldn't just say, well, while you're sick, I'll give you food and water. But once you're feeling a little bit better, mm -mm, nope. It's clear that that is torture. So we cannot apply a different standard to the mammals that are ourselves. Mm. 
Oh man, that one is so difficult for so many to wrap their heads around. I, I see this lack of motivation sometimes unless there's a crisis mode and then they get out of crisis. Maybe they gain some weight, maybe they're eating adequately, but then they're stuck in quasi recovery because there's this comfort zone that they reach. And is there anything you suggest to people who kind of get stuck in that place where they're really only motivated by that crisis scenario and now they're stuck in this comfort zone of quasi recovery? Yeah, there's two things that come to mind. One is an important validation. Almost all eating disorders, all eating disorders come with restriction regardless of what happens in addition to the restriction. When someone who has been numbing through eating disorder behaviors becomes a little less numb as a result of engaging in some recovery work, certain things are gonna get worse. They're not gonna feel better right away because as the brain starts to thaw, so will the OCD, so will the anxiety, so will the depression, so will the eating disorder voice thaw and become more powerful. Mm -hmm. And so those first four to eight weeks of engaging in behavioral change towards recovery can be torturous because all the, all the elements fly out of Pandora's box that were being tidally contained by the ice chamber of an eating disorder numbness. So if we can anticipate this with our patients and be like, you know what, it's going to get worse here. This is not going to be all right. You're going to feel bad. That can help because when it arrives, it's a little bit more anticipated. Sometimes this is a good reason to say, look, if you can't hold on to my words in between sessions, if you can't tolerate how hot everything's growing while you still have a starved brain and have it moved through to feeling better, maybe that's a good opportunity for a higher level of care mm-hmm. for some more containment. But in the final analysis, I think the most powerful motivator is hearkening back to the individual's own goals and values. Mm-hmm. So the dialogue goes like this. I get that you are four weeks into this and you are like, I'm done. I can't bear this. My distorted brain thinks my body has changed so much, so fast, even though I kind of know that's not true, but it feels awful. My anxiety is hot. I can't sleep. My OCD is raging. This is terrible. It's giving me the message that I knew recovery would be too unsafe. Mm -hmm. The message that I give is, but you told me that you really want to finish grad school and go help people. That is your superpower. You have something that nobody else has. And you have a lived experience that is going to help others. So it's clear to me, and I think it's clear to you, that living in this twilight zone is not going to allow you to show up authentically for the future clients whose lives you're going to change. I'd be happy to plateau right now. In outpatient in particular, there is no pre-written pace at which recovery has to happen. And that's where that autonomy is so important to honor. Do you need to hold on meal plan increases? Do you need to hold on weight change right now where that's applicable? 
Okay, great. Let's hold for a couple of weeks. Do you need to hold while you do some trauma work? Okay, great. But in the final analysis, it's about continuing to remind them what they told me about what matters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that is imperative to helping people get through that really tough place of the brain thaw that you so beautifully brought up. I love that comparison, by the way, because that connected with me immediately. I've also heard clients kind of explain it, this wave that comes that feels like they do any more work in recovery. It's just going to become this overwhelming wave. And they know once they're over the wave, the ocean's going to be calmer but it's getting over that, that is really terrifying. I actually love that metaphor and use a version of it as well, because sometimes when we're in an early pause or plateau or somebody who's older is doing a harm reduction strategy, mm-hmm. they just say, Dr. G, I'm getting clobbered. I don't feel better. I feel worse. This is awful. I don't know if this is going to work. And what I remind them is they're in the breakers. Mm. They paused, even though that felt like what they needed, right where the waves are crashing. So every time they try to take a breath, it's another bubbly wave in the face. And I say, sometimes if you just go a little further out, if you allow a little bit more nutrition, if you focus more on not purging, you actually get beyond the breakers and it's not as hard. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's so beautiful. I think the that metaphor is also just going to be so helpful to those listening. And it reminds me of another thing that I've heard in more personal development spaces, which is the majority of people quit their quit on their dream or their projects right when it's crucial for them to keep going. Mm. And if you push through, you get to the other side. And I, th- and I think when it starts to get really hard in recovery, it's almost a sign that you just got to keep pushing a little bit further. Yeah, that's right. And sometimes holding hope can be scary because for a lot of folks with eating disorders, hope has been met with disaster, disappointment, mm-hmm. loss of autonomy, I really am not the first one to believe this, but I've been thinking a lot about the fact that eating disorders themselves are traumatic and cause PTSD. And so does eating disorder recovery work. Mm. Both are depersonalizing and autonomy removing and really existentially threatening. So for someone who's been through that disappointing, difficult stage, holding hope still can become almost too much to bear because hope has been disappointed so many times. But if we can identify that that that's the case and validate, yeah, of course it's hard for you to hold hope right now. And that makes so much sense given your life experience. One of the things that I think can be helpful is, and I think it also helps improve the black or white thinking that can come is what if you just tried it? Mm. What if you tried the stage of recovery you and I are working on for like three months? You can always go back. 
And this isn't necessarily what this isn't written in the textbooks, but try it for three months and see. Because right now on this side of the line, you're believing that if you release these behaviors and release the identity of your eating disorder, it will be a disaster. You will be unsafe and the world will end. What if we got some data? What if you tried getting to the other side for three months and say, hey, this is just a try. I can always go back. Sometimes that's enough of sort of a okay, wait, I could give this a try that the anorexia sort of allows you to slip past the frontier with that one, instead of being like, here I go, I'm going to recover. Sometimes it's that try. And you say, look, in three months, we'll talk. What were the benefits? What were the downsides? Mm -hmm. What do you want to do next? Mm -hmm. I think the three month piece that that kind of middle ground. So that break away from black and white can be a big relief for those that I talk to, because when you think about trying on a new version of recovery permanently, that feels so overwhelming. And it's almost asking for burnout before you even start, at least from my own personal experience, I feel as though a lot of recovery is protecting burnout in, in a way. And when you give someone just a, like a smaller time frame to try on something new, like trying on a new hat, <laughs> just try it on for a little bit, see how you like it, collect data. Like you said, I also love thinking about things as like an observational study. You know, mm-hmm. this is just an observational study. We're going to collect data on how this new form of treatment goes for you or this new method. And that can be really, that can take the pressure off, which I love. Yeah, I think that's so wise. I agree. Mm-hmm. Wow. So my last question for you today is I love to, well, I love to have people walk away with some tangible things that maybe they can take action on. So how might you suggest someone to start breaking away from this? I'm not sick enough mentality. Like, is there anything they can do? to start separating themselves from that mindset? That's such a good question. I've never been asked that question before. Let's think. One way to do it is to make two lists. How my current self is feeling physically and emotionally and how my imagined future self would feel physically and emotionally Mm. and compare the two lists. Cause if they're identical, you may be getting close to recovery. That's amazing. Mm. But I think that if you list out with all honesty, how you're really feeling emotionally, where your thoughts lie, where your self-regard lies, how your tummy is feeling, how your, how your sleep is, how your energy is, how your creativity and spontaneity are going. And then you compare them with the person that you imagine might be out there for you. That can be a helpful exercise because it's personal, you know, and it's, it's a tangible version of what we've been talking about today. Mm. Um, And sometimes when patients can't hold any version of themselves down the road, it's just, it's too hard to envision sometimes while acknowledging my health privilege, I'll invite them 
into what it's like for me. So one of my patients was recently telling me in the last couple of weeks, Dr. G, I just sometimes even wonder if I still have an eating disorder. And I'll say, you know, understanding that this person has a harder time envisioning her future. I'll say, could I share with you what it's like for me? You know, what was like for me this morning after she had described her difficulty with breakfast and she's like, yeah. And I'll be like, so in my health privilege, I woke up this morning and I didn't think about my body or my food. And I made my coffee where I always put a huge amount of whole milk in because coffee for me is essentially a vehicle for whole milk, which is just so creamy and delicious. And then I took the kids to school and I came home and I just thought, what am I in the mood for? So I put some bacon grease in a pan and cooked up some eggs and cut up an avocado and put it in there and added some American cheese to my eggs because I just really like the texture of the melted American cheese and threw in some salsa and then crumbled some chips over the top of it and just sat there and ate my breakfast and tasted how good it felt. And then I went to take my shower and get ready for the day. Is that similar to how you're living? And she's like, ah, (laughs) no. And I'm like, okay, so that is my version of living well. And to the extent that there is a Delta there, appreciating that not everyone can get to a health outcome that others might, this is a way of helping you remember things could be different. Mm, Yes, that's so helpful. First of all, I love your list idea, the two lists side by side, always, always great to be able to write something down. And then being able to talk to someone who is in a better place, they do have health privilege, yes, but being able to see what's possible for your life can do wonders in expanding the way you think. And it also helps make your eating disorder feel less normalized. Because I think when you're stuck always with one type of breakfast every day or one morning that you're living with, you can say, this is a healthy morning. But if you compare it to someone who truly does not, you know, so someone who has a freer relationship with food, it might look so different. So I love that piece of advice as well. So thank you for that. Of course. And I think it's particularly important because we do live in such a disordered eating society So a lot of people with eating disorders do feel like their behaviors and focus are really only a few clicks worse than the majority of their workmates or their classmates or the members of their own family or extended family. And it does normalize disordered eating. But I think the more that we who are fortunate to be able to be free in our food relationship and joyful in our relationship with our bodies, can mentor and say, oh, there's, there's a whole different way. You don't just have to recover to the point where great aunt Marge does who (laughs) continually talks negatively about her body all through Thanksgiving and discusses what she shouldn't be eating and then does anyway, there is a totally different level you can get to. And I just want to let you know that that's out there. Mm -hmm. Yes, I completely agree. And I just wanted to say that today has been such an amazing opportunity for me to chat with you and for our listeners to hear all your wisdom and expertise. So 
Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It really means so much that you've stopped in to share all of this with us. It's such a joy to Meg. And thank you for your amazing questions. I think that you are changing the world and helping so many people. Oh, thank you so much. That means so much to hear from you. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. You too.